I'm an adult. Tell me again why I'm sneaking into a haunted attraction after hours. The drunk girl none of us wanted to bring along whines. Use your illegally trespassing voice, please. The leader of our little group, who also works at said haunted attraction during business hours, whispers back. Then we all file through a dark, industrial hallway. After a few dozen paces in the darkness, another member of our party throws a plastic water bottle in the direction of the girl's whiny voice, but misses, and the sound of clattering empty plastic echoes all around us. Why are water bottles always so loud? Suddenly, we all can tell that we've entered a much larger space. A pop explodes from somewhere in the room and several of us let out a little scream. Thousands of dim lights buzz to life in pockets of different colors. You can scream all you want, folks. No one's coming, our leader says with a triumphant smirk. Green lights illuminate a scene where pale, slender figures with large, dark eyes are slowly inserting metal skewers into a silently screaming businessman. Red lights light up a table saturated with blood where half a body lay amidst other scattered parts. Legs and torsos hang from the ceiling on hooks. A pig mask dangles from a rusty nail on the wall. Across the room, purple glowing black lights hit a row of human-sized cages. They are full of thin figures shackled in place. These grotesque humans have hideous injuries and medically executed deformities. Next, a line of jars filled with ghastly fetuses lit from below with acidic yellow creeps along a small alleyway that leads from scene to scene. This alleyway leads to a soft bluish light. The light dapples through an elaborately recreated section of a cornfield. At the center of the false field is a large and hideous scarecrow tied to a tree. Its body slumps as though weighted with an actual creature. The burlap sack used for its head drops to its straw-filled chest. And there's something about its eyes. The way the light hits them. No way, one guy says out loud, immediately setting eyes on the scarecrow and running in its direction. Our party silently spreads out. It's almost too much to take in. Even without the actors, it feels like people are watching us from every crevice and corner. Hey, what about the security cameras? I ask our leader, who also happens to work there. They turn them off after closing time, he says. I think they're really only worried about employees getting handsy or people getting hurt or passing out. That is a catastrophic pain in the ass. <gasps> Suddenly, a loud crash comes from the direction of the scarecrow and we all look. Some of us scream yet again. A member of our party is on the floor underneath the scarecrow that is broken in half. Shit, our leader says as he heads over to the scene. Sorry, the man on the floor half-heartedly sputters, but the damage has been done. We all run over to see if we can be of assistance, but when we draw near to the assumed straw man, one by one, we see that he wasn't straw at all. Inside the supposed prop is a shriveled human body. The white of its spine is visible through the moth holes in its ancient jacket. What the fuck? Somebody whispers, and our leader picks up the top half of the scarecrow, opening the jacket to reveal thousands and thousands of tiny rust-colored letters on the cream-colored lining. They spell out, help me, over 
and over and over again. The drunk girl screams yet again and backs directly into a blacklit cage, a hand with two fingers broken and mended to face directly upward at a horribly unnatural angle, grabs her by the hair and slams her head into the bars. With that, the other monstrosities in the cages lurch to life, and before we can utter a single sound, the girl is yanked through the bars and into a cell. Her screams intermingle with the familiar watermelon thwack of dull blade on body. A sound that has a physical presence. It is hitting the air like a wet bath towel. Panic hits and we scatter. The room has slowly filled with the worst kind of ambient noise. A drill, the hum of an extra bright surgeon's light. Fingernails slowly running over the wooden walls. The squeak of something heavy and wet being dragged across a tile floor. Our leader stands calmly and untouched, with the scarecrow's hood in hand, observing it all with a smirk. I look to my right and see the half-body on the butcher's table is twitching. It locks eyes with me briefly, and I know I need to run. I turn around, but smack into the figure wearing the pig mask. He raises a hammer over his head, and then the room goes black. When I come to, everything is blurry. I can feel the heat of my own breath on my face, and I can barely see. My eyes are sticky, and my face is wet. Two bright tunnels appear before me. No. If I move my head just a little, I notice their eye holes. My head is covered in some kind of hood. I struggle to move, but I am bound around the middle with a length of rope. My legs and arms are secured to something as well. My hearing is slowly returning, and I can just make out the dull hum of conversation. There are people in this room. Help me! I shriek in a ragged voice, and a scream comes from my immediate left. Oh my god! The teenage girl who has entered my eye holes view says, That fucking scarecrow gave me a heart attack. I must be near the scarecrow. I maneuver my head so that I can see down just through my hood, and my stomach flips in sick recognition when I see the thousands of rust-colored letters on my jacket's cream-colored lining. I am not near the Scarecrow. I am the Scarecrow. I see my friend, who works for the haunt, slowly walk by. You can scream all you want. Nobody's coming, he says under his breath and smiles. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. like that <laughs> you yeah that's a creepy one <laughs> Lolly. i didn't write an opening last week so i felt compelled to go like super hard this week god i hope like somebody she knows comes through at some point and she's like charlene i'm your neighbor and she'd be like i think somebody's there i love that her name is charlene <laughs> Charlene, it's Kristen. Like, Somebody let fucking me out. save Charlene. Yeah. Jesus. 
No, no, Charlene's the woman. Oh, Kristen's like her neighbor. Yeah, Kristen's under the hood. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Leslie. Hey, Allie. Hey, Fiends. Happy September. Whoop, whoop. Yes, it is spooky season. Because it's spooky for two months over here. Three months. Yeah, I think it's really scary. November. (laughs) Thanksgiving. So scary. Terrifying for the Indians. That's very true. Yeah. I thought it would be fun to kick all of this spooky stuff off um, this year with a story that begins in a haunted house. I told the 20-minute version of this story in a very, very early campfire night that was riddled with tech issues, so I feel like it deserved a second chance. And campfire stories are definitely going to come back this month. School is coming back. I have a little more time to plan and write, and that means you guys are going to get more content. We didn't, we didn't go on summer break but we definitely went on summer scale back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's all over now. I'm not going to dance around it this week. I want to do so many cool things this fall. Leslie doesn't even know about all of them. I don't. I want to do a lot of them. What are we doing? You'll find out later. (laughs) There are a lot of plans in the works and tentative engagements set up, but we cannot make these things happen without evidence that we have actual followers who love us out there in the world. So if you have not done so already, please, 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 head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. I swear to you, it matters way more than anyone thinks. Ratings and reviews open doors, plain and simple. Do you trust the can opener on Amazon that has 4,000 reviews that average to 4.8 stars or the one made by Jeff from Costco that has four reviews, all five stars, all from his mom? Mm. Mm-hmm. But if his mom's using it. Listen. Case <laughs> <laughs> in point. Please help us out. Validation is the sincerest form of flattery. I freaking love a validation. I love it so much. And thank you to everyone who has already done this for us. We do have a whole bunch. But more is more is more is more. More, 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 more. More, 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 more. And if you want a little more, we would be dead in your life. You can head on over to Patreon, where for a little monthly donation, you will receive access to our extra monthly minisodes, our patrons-only podcast 30-minute horror movies, a little gift from us, oncoming discounts in our merch store. We have um, some video recaps coming for just our patrons too. So they will be like the little kind of review and wrap up afterwards. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to start that tonight. We're going to see how it works. But we want to give you guys some like weekly little brief videos just for fun so you can feel like you're part of the process. So I'm excited about that. Um, you also get an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feed to your social media feed, tell us when you're listening, post about your favorite episode, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell the therapist you definitely needed to see after listening to last week's episode. Woo! A lot of you told me how sad it was. It was sad. I know. We Mm -hmm. were sad too. Then your friends and that kind and helpful therapist can become fiends and we can all hang out together. What's the therapist's name? Charlotte. Good one. Thanks. Charles helping us out. So be on the lookout for our September live stream campfire stories event. Should we bring John back for this one, do you think? That might be fun if he's yes. available. You available, John? Let us know. I know. I think I think we should. John, I hope you're free. We miss you. What's he doing? I don't know. Well, he's doing wigs for Elf. Yeah, he's making pop cake pops. Yeah, man. John, this is just a, a plug show for you. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm hoping we're going to be able to do that. And uh, I, I think that's all I have for this week, Leslie. 
Do you have anything to add before we begin? Man, I'm still just thinking about Kristen under that scarecrow hood. (laughs) It's no good. I picture it as like a burlap sack with holes in it. Yep. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) It's terrible. All right then. On with the show. On December 8th, 1976, the television show The Six Million Dollar Men was filming its fourth season. For those of us who don't know, like me, do you know what The Six Million Dollar Man is? No. Okay, me neither. I didn't either. (laughs) The Six Million Dollar Man was a wildly popular television show about former astronaut U.S. Air Force Colonel Steve Austin, which that rung a bell. Mm -hmm. The premise goes like this. After a NASA test flight accident, Steve Austin is rebuilt with superhuman strength, speed, and vision due to bionic implants and is employed as a secret agent by a fictional U.S. government office titled OSI. The series was based on Martin Caden's 1972 novel, Cyborg, not the Teen Titans character. Just in case you were like, huh, Teen Titans. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. Not all of us? No? Okay. (laughs) The episode being filmed on December 8th, which is the date in question, was titled Carnival of Spies. According to Bionic Wiki, because it has its own Wikipedia. Great. We didn't even know what it was. Has its own Wikipedia. Okay. Man. Quote, Professor Ulrich Rau, an East German scientist credited with designing their go-to air weapon system, fakes a heart attack and slips away from high-level scientific conference just a few days before the test flight of the United States' new B-1 bomber. Surprisingly, Rao heads for a traveling carnival that has set up operation within a few miles of the bomber's testing site. Mystified by Rao's choice of entertainment, Steve attempts to cut through a tight web of security presented by the close-knit carnival people in order to learn of Rao's mission. He finds that the carnival is disguised as a ground-to-air missile site, but will Rao use the Tilt-A-Whirl to sabotage the B-1? What is happening? (laughs) I just love close-knit carnival people. I know. They didn't want to say carnies at all. No. (laughs) Absurd. I had to read that whole thing because it was so crazy that it made me feel very strongly about all of us knowing that information. Why did we need to know this? Had to. Okay. Because it's nuts. (laughs) It only sets the tone for the rest of this, which just gets way crazier than that. The director of said absurd episode of The Six Million Dollar Man wanted to film in a real traveling carnival, but settled for the very stationary laugh-in-the-dark funhouse at the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California. The Pike had been around since 1902 and was nearing the end of its life, unfortunately, closing finally in 1979. Laugh in the Dark, the funhouse, or haunted attraction as we now call them, at the Pike was one of the oldest of its kind, featuring a laughing sow at the entrance. What's a laughing sow, you might ask? Oh, no, nothing. Just a terrifying nearly seven-foot-tall animatronic papier-mâché woman that moves back and forth and plays phonograph records back-to-back-to-back of a woman maniacally laughing. Nope. It's awful. If you want to see Laugh in the Dark's actual laughing sow... She's still on display at the Musée Mécanique in San Francisco. She is horrifying. Who was the original Sal? Just a doll. I don't know who she was based on. It doesn't say. Yeah. She looks like, do you know like the Asbury Park, that mural of mm-hmm. like the redheaded face? She yeah. looks like a female version of that in yeah. doll form, but very tall and laughing. I don't like it. Yeah, it's terrible. I think it's Tilly in Asbury Park is what they call that painting. 
Mm. Anyway, if you know what I'm talking about, you know. She's horrifying, but she's also the precursor to all of the animatronics we know and love in Disney World's lands and land. Disney World and land, and they're all their rides. (laughs) (laughs) Had to get land in there. Judging by Laughing Sal's age and the fact that all original Sal's were made around the same time, we can interpret that Laugh in the Dark was built in the 30s because there's no record of when that particular attraction came up. Mm -hmm. And so it's safe to assume that with original parts and characters, that by 1976, this was one creepy, dated, dark ride. Yeah. Haunted attractions, though, have their own really fun history. Leslie, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Get us a little in the spooky mood? I sure do. You know how much I love haunted things. You hate them. But anyway, this is going to be fun. Great. Okay, so haunted houses go back as far as the Egyptians. Ooh! Not that they were trying to create any attractions, though. The Egyptians developed ways to protect their treasures and dead royalty. They would provoke fear in people by creating mazes, moving walls, self-opening doors, and traps using creatures that shall not be named, and Ooh. insects. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I hate them. You can say them, but I I put one to. in the opening, didn't I? I don't remember. I probably blocked it oh, out. Oh, no, no, no. You're talking about something different. Yeah. You're talking about the forest creatures. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Greeks and Romans also forged a path for haunted attractions with their folklore consisting of mazes and labyrinths filled with monsters. Mm. Because they were also theatrical people. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) They developed special effects to represent monsters and beasts, as well as devices that we still use today, like fog, trap doors, ghostly images, and fake blood and gore. Although I'm sure that some of the fake blood was probably like pig's blood. Probably. I want to know how they created ancient Greek fog. I know. (laughs) What did you guys do? I ran out of time, but I was, I like, I did. (laughs) They just have like a block of ice that they blew hot air onto or something? Mm. Uh, During the Dark Ages, Europe went from Celtic and pagan to practicing Christianity. These Christians also enjoyed traveling around and performing plays to spread the good word. These plays were mostly biblical stories and included many of the scarier scenes to frighten the audience into staying pious. And though this technique worked slightly, those who attended really enjoyed the scares and gore. Mm. And so these plays remained pretty popular. Okay. And in 1802, Madame Tussaud created— I love Madame Tussaud. Me too. Uh, She created what would be known as the Chamber of Horrors, an exhibition of wax sculptures of decapitated victims of uh, the French Revolution, including King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Guys, let us know if you would like an episode on Madame Tussaud, because I would be super happy to do it. Yeah, she's really interesting. Even if we do it for patrons. Mm -hmm. I have a biography, too. So good. Anyway, continue. In France from 1897, the Grand Guignol (laughs) Theater. You want to spell that one? G-U-I-G-N-O-L. Guignol. No, I think you were right. Guignol. It feels right. The Grand Guignol (laughs) Theater was scaring audiences (laughs) with geographically staged horror entertainment. Then in the 1900s, that gave us the traveling carnivals and a rise to freak shows, creating public interest in human deformities and other oddities. And the first recorded haunted attraction was the Orton Orton and Spooner Ghost House, which opened in 1915 in the UK as part of 
an Edwardian fair. This attraction mostly resembles a carnival funhouse powered by steam. I bet it was the coolest thing ever. I know, for that time, too. Oh, I hope there are pictures of it. Mm-hmm. They still, like, have—it's um, still there. I don't think—like, there wasn't— It's probably all, like, automaton-type things. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. that's so cool. I didn't go on—well, I went onto the page, and then it had, like, a really scary <laughs> clown, so I stopped I'll- and then was, like— I just Googled, like, 1915 to only find that information and not what it is today. So you can do that. I'll dig into (laughs) it and see what I can find. I'll give us some pictures or some extra content on it. Cool, cool, cool. I'm not scared, guys, I swear. You're so scared. (sighs) The Great Depression had a large part in haunted house attractions. Parents in neighborhoods were getting frustrated with young hooligans. With the young hooligans during Halloween. Um, Their antics were getting so bad, like all the vandalism and everything like that was getting really bad. So the parents decided to try making some haunted houses as a place for teens to go and enjoy a scare. Oh my God, I always wanted someone in my neighborhood to make one and they never did. Oh, my friends, um, the Miss Savages kind of did one. Um, My friend that, that swims. Yes. Yeah, she she does. She they Their house was always terrifying to so go to. So cool though. Yeah. I love that. Um, So, yeah, so they were very, like, grassroots efforts of haunted houses. And then in 1969, Disneyland opened the Haunted Mansion and was an instant success. Many business-minded people saw how financially prosperous the Haunted Mansion was and thus began the rise of haunted house attractions around North America. Some used this opportunity to turn a profit, while others found it to be a great way to raise money for many charities. You guys... I love the Haunted Mansion so much. (laughs) It's a good one. It's the best. So here are some interesting facts on haunted house attractions. Please. One, haunted houses are more widespread than Target. What? A recent estimate from the Haunted House Association, yes, there is a Haunted House Association. Love them. Indicated that roughly 2,700 haunted houses operate across the U.S., while Target has only 1,800 locations. Get it together, Target. Two, though haunted houses can be extremely profitable, 80% are charitable operations. Really? They are either run by a charity or donate up to 100% of their profits. For example, Hangman's House of Horrors in Fort Worth, Texas, has raised $1.7 million for local charities. Oh, my gosh. And then, like, a smaller example would be, like, even just somebody in the neighborhood putting one together and charging and then taking that money to, like, a local charity. Oh, wow. That's yeah. so nice. I think there was a family, um, their father, something happened with this kidney, like a kidney oh, failure. No. And so he was trying to raise awareness afterwards. He was fine, but he wanted to raise awareness for mm. other people that didn't have money to like help with these treatments. So that's where his family does a haunted house every year to bring money oh, God, Well, that. if you guys know of a charitable haunted house, let us know. We will plug them. Mm-hmm. That's great. I most, love that. Yeah. And most of them are. So that's great. Yeah. And then three. If you died in a haunted house, would anybody notice? As we found out for poor Kristen. Probably not. Poor Kristen. (laughs) Okay, so unfortunately, due to the horrifying sights one can expect in a haunted house, it is easy to overlook a performer who is actually in trouble. On October 20th, 1990, 17-year-old Brian Jewell accidentally hanged himself (gasps) while working for a haunted hayride in Lakewood, New Jersey. In Lakewood?! Visitors found his body hanging from a gallows as the ride rumbled past his scare station. Quote, he's supposed to have the noose around his neck, but it's not a noose that tightens, end quote, describes prosecutor James Holsafel. 
I don't think you can tie a noose that doesn't tighten. I guess if you knock it, it just, off. Yeah. Jewel would, would normally speak to the visitors passing by as he hung from the rope. So just like that scarecrow kind of thing, like they would yeah, normally yeah, yeah. speak. But the tractor driver became concerned when he passed by and Jewel remained silent. That was when the tragic discovery was made. <gasps> oh, my gosh. I know. That's wow. nuts. Another one was over a decade later in 2001, 14-year-old Caleb Reb, sorry, R-E-B-H. Sounds right was also accidentally hanged as he volunteered for a haunted hayride in Michigan. Though visitors and other workers witnessed Reb's struggle with the noose around his neck, they thought it was part of the act, and no one offered assistance. He started the evening working at a station featuring a coffin, but switched with another worker whose station included a skeleton hanging from a noose. Wanting to make his station as scary as possible for visitors, he replaced the skeleton with himself— as he let go of the rope, the oh. branch holding the noose snapped back into place, tightening the rope to a fatal degree. When other workers finally realized Reb ha- was in trouble, they tried to resuscitate him, but it was too late. Oh, my God. Horrible, right? Also so, so appropriate to this mm-hmm. week's case. And another decade after that, 17-year-old Jessica Rue accidentally hanged herself as part of a display, although luckily she survived. Oh, phew. On her second day working for Creepy World in Fenton, Missouri, Rue was stationed in a room by herself with a bathtub and a noose hanging above. Somehow, Rue became tangled up with the noose and it tightened around her neck. The exact details remain a mystery as Rue spent the following three days in a coma and suffered memory loss upon waking up. Despite lasting effects after the fact, she was able to return to school make up the time she had lost, and graduate with her class on schedule. Oh, my gosh. So, like, if you work at a haunted house, do not put a rope around your neck. Yeah. Just don't do it. Here's the thing. A noose is an extremely mobile slipknot. If you know how to tie a noose, which I taught myself how to do, just because I feel like I should know how to do that, (laughs) um, you'll know that it adjusts even faster than a normal slipknot. It just, that's that's Mm -hmm. why it works the way it does. It's meant to to just slide really mm-hmm. fast. So if you have an actually tied noose, it is not safe in any way. It is super fast closing, and it's going to react before you can. Right. So, like, never, 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 never play around with the hangman's noose. Right. Just don't do it. Also, uh, we have a lot of friends, or fiends, I should say, that do work or have worked in mm-hmm. haunted attractions. So if you have stories, mm-hmm. you have ghost stories or a creepy story or anything like that coming from a haunted attraction, please send it to us. Or if you even have like um, information on like if you have something with a noose, is there different protocols on, is it like more of a prop? Yeah, how do they Does make it sure not it's actually off? It not, can't be active. Yeah, exactly. Like do they, yeah, what do they do? Yeah, so um, give us your haunted attraction stories. Send them, we have a Gmail, right? What's our yeah. Gmail address? We would be deadpodcast at gmail.com. Send them, to, send them to that address. I would love to do like a little special on haunted attractions. Mm-hmm. If you guys have stories, we'll read them. So yeah. send them to us. Just decided that off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you, Leslie. That was fun. So back to the $6 million man. The crew of the show entered the old fun house to set up their shoot. Since it was crammed with display items that they had slowly accrued through the years, the crew knew that they would have to place cameras carefully and perhaps move a few of these crumbling old pieces in the process. When they settled on a location for their scene, they noticed one prop literally hanging (gasps) in their way. 
It was the hanged man figure. Also, thank you for saying hanged every time. You're welcome. A grotesque day-glow orange painted dummy that hung on a makeshift gallows. Why orange? Well, in recent years, at this time, black lights had been added to the attraction so that a lot of the items received a coat of reactive paint to freshen up its look. Black lights were wildly popular in the 60s and 70s, so gotta stay current. Throw some black light paint on your stuff. Which is, like, still pretty... Yeah. Pretty... I think that's why I hate haunted houses, because then I'm always like, I'm in a black light, and then, like, yeah. you have to dress appropriately, and it's still like you have to that. worry yeah, about your teeth. Everything is still black and- <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Your teeth are always weird. It's like, I never want to open my mouth. Agreed. <laughs> so because this prop was hung from the rafters by a noose, mm-hmm. a crew member had to get up on a ladder to remove it. And so the man climbed up the ladder and grabbed the rubber dummy by the arm to move it towards him. In doing so, the dummy, which was much heavier and more still than they thought it might be, just like unmoving, it gave way and its arm broke off in the crew member's hand. Yep. A bit stunned, the man looked at the arm that was now independently swinging in his hand and noticed that protruding from the fractured area was a very real human bone and what was clearly desiccated human tissue. Ew. Stunned, the man looked up to see more of the same at the site where the arm broke from the body. Layers of paint, wax, varnish, and then more blacklight paint flaked away from the break. Gross. The man climbed down and showed the discovery to the rest of the crew and then walked over to the nearest payphone, because it's 1976, and dialed 911, who sent over emergency services. A which late it was for that. Yeah. <laughs> Like a little late for those yeah. guys. <laughs> when the ambulance pulled up. <laughs> they were like, this isn't us. You called the wrong people. No, the crew received them and joked that they had better get ready to treat a dehydration victim. No. Yes. Oh, that's really funny. But terrible. Dark, but funny. Yeah. Before showing them the mummified remains. Shortly thereafter, the police showed up on the scene. The body was taken to the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office, and on December 9th, Dr. Joseph Choi carried out what I can only assume was the strangest autopsy of his career. (laughs) He was probably like, oh, man, really? (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he was like, oh, cool, dried out, not as gross. Yeah. Difficult, though. I wish all my patients could be as still as this one. (laughs) Weren't you all as dried out? (laughs) Uh, Dr. Choi discovered that what they had found was indeed the body of a human man and that he had died from a gunshot wound to the chest a great many years ago. Mm, interesting. I know. The body had been completely petrified and then covered in wax and layers of phosphorus paint, the kind that will, like, really hit under a black light. Mm. The body weighed about 50 pounds and at that point was 63 inches tall. That's five foot three for those like me who do not do immediate math in their heads. Thank you. No problem. He was missing his fingers, earlobes, like or ear, like the all the cartilage of his ear. So it's just like a little canal was there, and big toes. Ooh, I know. I hate dead people's feet. I hate all feet. So there you go. <laughs> but miraculously, he still had some visible hair. Nope, it's <laughs> also the worst on the sides and back of his head. I know. Once you're dead, you should have no hair. That's terrible. Well, in our cadaver labs, they would cover the hair. 
But every once in a while, especially like with a woman, you would see, and, uh, and that still continues to grow, mm-hmm. I believe. So like, no, your your tissues shrink, so it looks like it's coming out, but really it's just what was underneath uh, okay. coming forward more. I gotcha. So, but yeah, there's a couple I can still picture. That's why the, the death hair. mask I have freaks me out because it has the woman's hair cut off Ew, and put in that's the wax. Right. You touched it. I didn't touch it. Did you I sure did. It? You held it. Why do I forget these things? Why I have a you? terrible memory. I mean, this you is why should... I'm glad I do a podcast because I listen <laughs> back and I'm like, I remember now. You guys should watch our old live shows on YouTube because Leslie touches it. The death mask that I have in my house. Yes, I, I should watch it. You should. <laughs> that my husband gave me for Christmas and I was freaked out by it. <laughs> anyway. Upon examination, it was clear that there had actually already been an autopsy performed on this man at the time of his death and that he had been embalmed. So, how did a man who had clearly been at a funeral home at one point come to rest in a funhouse a great many years later? Hmm. The mystery only grew as the examination continued. Okay. Tests conducted on the petrified tissue revealed that the presence of arsenic which is why you should always wear gloves when handling ancient dead things or embalming tools. And arsenic was only present in embalming fluid until the late 1920s. Tests also revealed tuberculosis in the man's lungs, bunions on his feet, and several rather large scars. So this is an identifiable body. Has a lot of distinguishing characteristics. While the bullet that had taken his life was long gone, Dr. Choi did discover the bullet jacket which was determined to be a gas check bullet, the likes of which were only used from 1905 to 1940. So all signs right now are leading to old. Wasn't like a Fonzie jacket? No. It was like the little casing around the bullet. What if the bullet was wearing a tiny leather jacket? (laughs) I know, that's what I was picturing. It's so cute. (laughs) Even stranger, not stranger than like a Fonzie jacket, but stranger than what I originally wrote. (laughs) was that when Dr. Choi removed the body's mandible, which is the bottom jaw, to send away for dental identification, it's pretty common, he found some even stranger hints. In the long dead man's mouth were a 1924 penny and ticket stubs for both the 140 West Pike Sideshow and Lewis Sonny's Museum of Crime. He must have been really hungry. Postmortem hungry? Yeah. Okay. Just. <laughs> Investigators were able to track down the proprietor of said museum of crime, a man named Dan Sonny, and they would actually learn that he wasn't the proprietor, he was his son, who told him that the body they had was that of a man named Elmer McCurdy. Mm. To confirm this identification, Dr. Choi called the forensic anthropologist with the coolest name in existence, Dr. Clyde Snow. Yes. What? That's a sexy name. Right? I would like to know Dr. Mm-hmm. Clyde Snow. Is it just because of like John Snow? It's like I'm just picturing him I'm like now. like Bonnie and Clyde? Or Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. So like. The oh. combination is not bad. No. So, like, if Bonnie and Jon Snow had a child and she was just like, but I miss my lover, Clyde, and then they named it Clyde Snow. I'm here for that And that's our anthropologist now, forensic anthropologist. He's amazing. It's like a sexy job, too. It It is a sexy job. That's very true. Oh, man. Man. Is he single? (laughs) Should we be hooking people up with him? (laughs) We need more cocktails. 
Dr. Snow took radiographs of the body's skull and superimposed them over existing radiographs of Elmer McCurdy's melon. This seems dated, but in 1976, it was cutting-edge technology. The two were an exact match. That coupled with dental records, records showing that Mr. McCurdy had the same distinctive scars as the body and a history of tuberculosis, led the team to believe that their funhouse mummy was indeed the one and only Mr. Elmer McCurdy. Just one question remained. Who the hell was Elmer McCurdy? Why do we care about him? In short, the worst train robber in American history. Oh. Twist. My, my. In Long, Elmer McCurdy was born in Washington, Maine, a rural town by 2010 standards, so I imagine it was downright remote back on January 1st, 1880, when Elmer was born. Mm-hmm. Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about 1880 to get us in the old-timey spirit? Sure. This is my favorite year. Perfect. Great. So 1880 was part of the Gilded Age in America, which occurred from the 1870s to about the 1900s. We talked a little bit about the Gilded Age during Lizzie Borden. Perfect. Uh, It was a time of rapid economic growth, especially in northern and western United States. Which we are going to be in. As American wages grew much higher than those in Europe, especially for skilled workers, the period saw an influx of millions of European immigrants. The expansion of industrialization led to more jobs and a wage growth of about 60% for men, women, and children. Wow. Uh, everything was going well. Well, not really. While oh. some Americans were becoming... <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> while some Americans were becoming wealthy or wealthier, the Gilded Age was also an era of abject poverty and inequality as millions of immigrants, many from impoverished regions, poured into the United States and the high concentration of wealth became more visible and contentious. And so, Charles Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest became a social term. And I feel like America still runs on that theory now. We talked about athletic Darwinism last week. Yeah. Charles Darwin. Social Dar- Darwinism. He also ate every animal he discovered. True story. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in other 1880 news, yes. on June 1st, the first payphone in the U.S. is installed in New Haven, Connecticut. And we talked about a payphone already. Yeah. Amazing. We also talk about, like, learning a trade. You're killing it. Wild. <laughs> on June 12th, pitcher from Worcester Ruby Legs, uh, Lee Richmond, throws first perfect game in the Major League Baseball history in a one to nothing win over Cleveland Blues at the Agricultural County Fairgrounds, Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, I thought that was cool. That is cool. Lee Richmond also played for the Boston Red Sox, for those who care. Go sports. For our Canadian listeners, Oh, Canada. Beautiful. Became the national anthem of Canada on July 1st, 1980. Oh, 1880. 1980. They waited so long. I feel like I tried to correct 1980 to 1880 so many times, and that's what was left. (laughs) I didn't do my job. Fair enough. You're doing good. But did you know, Holly? Probably not. It was originally sung in French, which kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1908 that they had an English translation, and then it went through like several different translations, and then Hmm. we have what we have now, I think. Canadians, you can correct me on that. Oh, I hope we have Canadian fans. We do. Amazing! Dr. Emily Stow becomes the first woman licensed to practice medicine in Canada. Ooh. So, go Canada! 
On October 1st, John Philip Sousa becomes new director of the U.S. Marine Corps Band. Oh, all right. He's big time. I know. He's a big time down here. Yes, he is. Yeah. Woo. Uh, Last but certainly not least. Not. On December 20th, New York's Broadway is one of the first electrically lit streets in the U.S. About a mile worth of Broadway was illuminated by brush arc lamps and would become known as the Great White Way. You guys, a couple weeks ago, the lights went back on. <gasps> I love it. <sighs> Broadway's coming back. So and it's happy. hotter than ever. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Isn't that yep. needed? <laughs> Boy, 1880, what a time. Man, yeah. I like it. So now, Elmer's mother, Sadie McCurdy, was a mm, 17 I know, good nice name, name, right? Yeah, okay. Good names I in this one. I see you, girl. <laughs> There's more good names to come, too. Okay. So Sadie McCurdy was a 17-year-old unmarried girl on that cold New Year's Day when Elmer was born. So he was steeped in scandal from the jump. Some historians and armchair detectives alike think that Elmer's father may have been Sadie's older cousin, a man named Charles Smith. Mm. Later in life, Elmer went on to use that name as one of his aliases, though it's a pretty general name and one that he already had rattling around in his head, so I'm not so sure we can make that assumption based on that kind of evidence, but it's worth mentioning. Because having a child at 17 was pretty common back then, but having a child at 17 while unmarried was a horrific offense— Sadie's brother George and his wife Helen adopted young Elmer to save both Elmer and Sadie the agony of social ostracization. Elmer would simply think of Sadie as his beloved aunt. This tactic has gone well for precisely no one. Never works. Ask Ted Bundy how he felt about being lied to about his mom. I'll give you a hint. It didn't go well. Oh, I forgot about him. Mm. I have a terrible memory. Girl, you don't remember any of them. (laughs) Oh, my God. Sadly, George died when Elmer was 10 in 1890 of tuberculosis, so Sadie and Helen took little Elmer and the trio moved to the ever so much more populated city of Bangor, Maine. Sometime along the way, Sadie decided to tell Elmer Elmer, that she was his real mother, and Helen was actually his, I can't ever say this word appropriately, aunt, aunt, how do I not sound too Jersey? I think it's just your personal preference. Okay. And it's... I say both, but it depends I on say how both I say too, it. But I'm sentence. hyper-conscious of how New Jersey I sound during audio recordings. <laughs> I usually say, like, I would say Aunt Helen, but then Aunt by itself. Okay, that's fair. So, the old, your aunt's your mother, and your mother's your aunt, switcheroo. Classic. Elmer, much like Ted, did not respond well to this. You guys, it never goes well. Do not do this. The once cheerful and obedient child turned surly and rebellious. Elmer was furious at the world and took to drinking heavily in his early teens as a way to cope with a situation he did not know how to wrap his brain around. Just, like, figure it out, Elmer. I know. It's not that hard. I, you know, (laughs) somebody was taking care of you and they loved you. It's fine. Your mom would have been stoned to death. Just, like, figure it out. It doesn't go well for anyone, so this must fuck up anyone it happens to royally. No, I know. I know. It's terrible. It is confusing, but. (laughs) Eventually, it was decided that it would be best for teenage Elmer to move in with his grandfather and learn a trade, as you said. Good time to learn a trade. Yep. 
So he did just that, becoming an apprentice plumber and earning himself a living wage. That is until 1898 when the United States economy tanked and Elmer found himself out of a job. Mm -hmm. Then, in August of 1900, his mother Sadie died of a ruptured stomach ulcer. Which is an awful way to go. That's horrible. Yeah. The following month, Elmer's grandfather died of Bright's disease, which is also a pretty terrible way to go. We've talked about Bright's before. We now know this as nephritis, which is a painful kidney disease. In in any way you state it, it's like also a pretty terrible way to go. I, w- I think that that's the disease that that father had that I was talking about that does that haunted house that oh, they really? raise money for. We don't call it Bright's anymore. We call it no. nephritis. So that's, that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. It's like painful and horrible. It's funny how my stories are just super connecting You've today. You like <laughs> killed it this week. You really did. Maybe so I like subconsciously actually remembered this story. <laughs> Maybe you did. <laughs> At this point, Elmer has found himself homeless. I'm not sure what happened to his mother, Aunt Helen, but I guess the two didn't really want much to do with each other because he began rather nomadically wandering around the eastern United States looking for jobs as a plumber, and when they didn't turn up, he took to working in coal mines. Wait, I thought Helen died. Mm Mm-mm, Sadie, his real mom, died. But then why did Sadie—oh. She just was like— Who died of tuberculosis? His uncle. His uncle. So originally, Sadie's brother, George, and his wife, Helen, adopt Elmer. Okay. George dies. Okay. Then Sadie dies. But Helen's still kicking. So George, but George died, and then Sadie was like, I'm your mom. Yes. Okay. That's why I thought it was the end. I don't know why she chose that time to do it, but she did. She was like, well, now I live with who used to be your mom, so I'm feeling real jealous, and I have to tell you that I'm your actual mom. Mm. And then he was like, can't handle that. Right. Right. So they sent him off to his grandfather. Okay. Who also died. All of this is terrible. Right. Anyway, I just wondered while I was writing, like, what happened to Helen? Why didn't she take him in? But she yeah. didn't. Like I said, when Jobs, as the plumber, didn't turn up, he took to working in the mines. But Elmer could never really hold on to either one of those kinds of jobs for very long because he was always drunk. In 1905, he ventured beyond the eastern states to move to Kansas, where he found work as a plumber for a little while before being arrested for public intoxication, which lost him his job, and meant he had to move again, this time to Webb City, Missouri, where it would seem something similar eventually befell old Elmer. Hmm. I feel like you'd have to be really drunk at that time. He was. He was, like, super stumbling drunk. Hmm. In 1907, fresh out of options, Elmer enlisted in the United States Army. He was assigned to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, where he was a machine gun operator who was also given very minimal training in how to use nitroglycerin for demolition purposes. Now, some sources on this story will call him a, quote, demolition expert, which is extremely funny given the way the next part of the story goes. (laughs) I'm inclined to believe he only knew the basics. Right. Also, I'm just imagining him wasted, like, handling this machinery. Oh, no. None of that spells good. (laughs) On November 7th, 1910, Elmer was honorably discharged from the army, but there is no word as to how or why that happened. He never did stop drinking, though, so I can't help but think that that might have had something to do with it. Of course. So from there, he and an army buddy moved to St. Joseph's, Kansas, 
where they set their minds to embark upon an extraordinary life of crime. <gasps> Fancy. It was extraordinary, all right. Twelve days after they arrived in St. Joseph's, the boys were arrested for carrying, quote, burglary paraphernalia, Ooh. which meant chisels, hacksaws, funnels, nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and empty money sacks. <laughs> I really want to believe that these were like burlap bags with a dollar sign painted on the front of them in black. 100%. Right? How else does one know that they're money sacks? Right. But, 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 the boys told the judge that they weren't robbing nobody. They were just using that stuff on a brand new foot-powered machine gun they were busy inventing. Well, that's cool. <laughs> if you're 10. Yeah. <laughs> because... There was really no proof of a crime. Elmer and his pal were found not guilty, although I'm pretty sure the judge was like, keep an eye on those two idiots mm-hmm. on their way out of court. But he was probably like, keep an eye on them, but like they're also drunk, so they might be trying to build this thing. <laughs> they really might be trying to build. I'm still not convinced they weren't. They may have been. Yeah, to use in, in their, their robberies. Yeah, their of course. life of crime. I mean, it was, it was still crime, but they yeah. could have also been slightly telling the truth. Sure. Deciding then and there that narrowly escaping the law for carrying a bag of real shady stuff made them geniuses who could get away with anything, Elmer and his friend decided to enter the business of poorly robbing banks and trains. (laughs) A common thief was a dirty occupation, but bank robbers and train robbers? They were celebrities. Yep. Now, we discussed the glamorized criminals of this time period in our episode on Bonnie and Clyde, and I suspect it was this kind of life that Elmer had envisioned for himself. But Clyde Barrow was a slick, bloodthirsty, and fearless man, and Elmer McCurdy was not. (laughs) So now, just for funsies, before we get into the thick of it, Leslie, can you give us some fun facts about train robbery? Sure. Also something I know a lot about. Oh, man. Crazy. So train robberies were almost distinctly an American crime. Oh. Those done in Mexico or Canada were thought to be perpetrated by Americans. Okay. Mm -hmm. During the years after the Civil War, much of the nation suffered a period of unemployment and lawlessness, spawning several notorious desperados and outlaw gangs. Many of these trained robbers were once highwaymen who robbed stagecoaches and horse-drawn carriages. The idea of robbing a train that held 200 to 300 unsuspecting victims, as well as desirable goods like money and metals, sounded much more profitable than going after a stagecoach carrying like a handful of people. Maybe just one. Maybe they didn't even have money. You're doing such a good job this week. I cannot (laughs) wait for you to realize why. Train robberies were thought to begin in the 1860s, becoming much more common around 1880s and 90s, and then trailing off by the 1930s. Two of the most famous train robbers are Jesse James and Butch Cassidy. But Ooh, these, Yes, Jesse James. We will yes. tell that story. But these might not have become notorious outlaws without the original train robbers, the Reno Brothers. Ooh. Or Reno Brothers. I don't know. They're dead now, so. They I can't argue me. with you. So the Reno brothers, or Reno? What do How you, do you spell say? It? R-E-N-O? Reno. Reno? Okay. Shot a man in Reno. Oh, all right. Well, that's better mm-hmm. anyway. So the Reno brothers. Yay! <laughs> the Reno brothers gang is believed to have executed the first train robbery. The Reno brothers were composed of four brothers, Frank, William, Simon, and John. On October 6th, 
1866, they boarded an eastbound Ohio and Mississippi Railroad passenger train near Seymour, Indiana, and entered an Adams Express Company car. Then, wearing masks and toting guns, they tried to break into a safe. Some accounts mention that they were able to get one of the safes open while tossing another out the window to open later, but other accounts say it was just the one safe they had time for, and after having trouble opening, William tried shooting his pistol at it with no luck. <laughs> he just was like, bing, bing. <laughs> so I could just see them like going like real crazy in there and yep. then be like, we can't get it open. He's like, move aside. Bing, 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 bing. And he's like, it's not working. Yep. So running out of time, they tossed the safe out the window and they followed, jumping off the train and making an easy getaway. They ran off with over $10,000. Unfortunately for the Reno brothers, they were quickly identified by authorities because they were pretty popular thieves in the area. Celebrities. Yeah, right? The railroad companies hired Pinkerton detectives to find the perps, and after some tracking, they were able to capture John Reno during during another heist of county, treasury, and Missouri at the end of 1867, so like a year later. By May of 1868, he pleaded guilty of that crime and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So just of that, like, treasury heist, not this other one. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, his brothers were continuing to rob trains, one of which earned them $96,000, which is more than, like, Jesse will ever get. Holy moly. Or Butch Cassie. But not before they beat a guard with pistols and crowbars. So they end up— yeah. The guard died six days later, so now there's, like, a dead guard in this one, right? That's a very Bonnie and Clyde moment, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Pinkerton detectives set up a trap to capture the Reno brothers by starting a rumor about a train carrying a big gold shipment. Oh, my God. This is all fits in so well. <laughs> Without fail, the Reno brothers showed up to get paid, and they were instead greeted by the Pinkerton detectives <gasps> and taken into custody. Before the brothers could go through a proper trial— like five days later, a group of locals who know the who knew that the guard had died and they like knew him well mm-hmm. decided to take matters into their own hands. Heartbroken and wanting justice, Ugh. the group of vigilantes yanked the three brothers out of jail and hanged them. Ooh. Frank and William were said to have gone rather quietly, but Simon put up a fight lasting thirty minutes before succumbing to the rope. Oh, I love that name, Simon. Yeah, such a good name. So yeah, that was um, wow. <laughs> That's a good story. And I will say here and now, the next time, because we've mentioned Pinkerton detectives before, the mm-hmm. next time we talk about them, I promise to do a piece, like a little side piece explaining them. Okay. They're a thing. Yeah. They're very mm-hmm. interesting. But we've never like, that's never been one of our rabbit holes before. And I realize yeah. it should be at some point in time. Mm-hmm. So anyway. I know. I almost like didn't put them in. And then as I was like doing the story, I almost just put like detectives. No, no, no. I didn't think They're it mattered. a thing. But then I, like, as I was doing the story, I was like, no, like, they were hired by the railroad company. Like, they probably did a bunch of other ones. I have definitely mentioned them before without explanation. Mm -hmm. So that's a little, like, exciting next time for you guys. Mm. We'll do Pinkerton. Not the album. That's Pinkerton. That's Pinkerton. It's a great album. It is. Well, now that we're in the mood for high-speed crime, let's get back to Elmer. Elmer knew that with his extreme cleverness and advanced knowledge of nitroglycerin, he could for sure expertly crack safes and get away from crime scenes unnoticed. Great. That's how that goes, right? Yeah. The thing is, Elmer just really, 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 really liked blowing things up. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. 
He liked it too much, which frequently led to way bigger explosions than he anticipated. But he was probably like, cool. Well, (laughs) not so much. Okay. In March of 1911, having relocated once again to Lenapa, Oklahoma, Elmer and three other idiots, I mean men, three other men, decided that they were going to rob the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train. The Missouri Pacific was one of the first railroads in the United States. It was a big, well-known company that eventually went bankrupt and was bought out by Union Pacific during the Great Depression. I tell you this because this was not a casual, low-key, backcountry train. It was a major cross-country railroad. So, you know, like a real good starter train for Robin. Right. Yeah, aim high, you yeah. know. Shoot, shoot for the moon. Yeah. Put it on the vision board yeah. and go for it. Big-ass train. Mm-hmm. Robin that shit. Yep. But Elmer was an ambitious man who had heard that the safe on board contained $4,000. Rumors about train money everywhere. Right. (laughs) Which in today's money would have been $118,568.08. So, a real pretty penny. Right, right. Elmer and the boys somehow managed to stop this train, and then Elmer executed his trademark over-exploding on the safe with way too much nitroglycerin. The safe and most of the money therein was completely destroyed. All the paper money burned up on impact, and so Elmer and his friends walked away with just $450 in silver coins, which doesn't sound bad until you find out that the coins had melted into a giant glob that partially fused with the remains of the frame of the safe. Oh. So Elmer and the boys had one giant paperweight and zero (laughs) dollars. They just destroyed a full safe of money. They're just like, guys, look at my wad. We got this. It's huge. (laughs) We did it. Can't spend it, but we sure did do it. We sure did do it. Can't they um, at least melt it again? Probably. I suppose they could have tried that. But it also had, like, safe metal in it, so they would have had to sort that out, too. That's for the bank to do. (laughs) That's for the silver-selling folks. Yeah. All right. But if at first you don't succeed, blow more shit up super hard. Okay. Is what I always say. Yeah. Forever. I always say. Yeah, it's a good motto. That's what I said. Like, live live right up. Live right by it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in September of 1911, Elmer and two new accomplices decided to rob the Citizens Bank in Chautauqua, Kansas. I say the the Citizens Bank and not Citizens Bank because this is when every town just had one bank for its citizens. Aw, adorable. And it might be Chautauqua. I'm sorry if I mispronounce your town name. I'm trying super hard, you guys. For two hours... Elmer hammered through the bank wall with a hammer until he finally made himself a nice little hole. Then he placed a nitroglycerin charge next to the door of the bank's outer vault. And kaboom! But not the right kaboom. The blast only blew off the the outer vault door, which rocketed its way through the bank, (laughs) destroying the entire bank lobby. And leaving the safe fully intact and locked up tight. That's a good safe. <laughs> it just blew the outer door outward. Oh. It didn't even touch the safe. Oh, my God. This was no Did good. Did it take him? That'd be so funny if it, like, took him with it. <laughs> no, he's just standing there staring at it like, oh, no. 
Bummer. Well, see you guys tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Elmer walked through the rubble and then tried to blow up the safe itself, which worked so well for him the last time. But the nitroglycerin charge he set up for the safe wouldn't ignite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At this point, the rest of the gang had kind of lost faith in Elmer and got a little nervous. Their lookout ran away into the night, and Elmer and his two accomplices scavenged for what they could find that had been left outside of the safe and then fled the wreckage with about $150 in coins. Unmelted this time. The three men then hopped a train over state lines and split up. Elmer went to Oklahoma, where he was able to stay at his friend Charlie Rivard's ranch in the hay shed. Once, I know, (laughs) I'm in the hay shed. Good times. Hay shed, she shed. (laughs) (laughs) Once there, Elmer laid down and drank heavily day and night for the next few weeks until he ran out of non-melted money. On October 4th, Elmer decided that he couldn't live in a hay shed anymore, and so he planned another robbery. Elmer and two new friends, because once you rob anything with Elmer, you never go back, were going to rob the Katy train after hearing that it was carrying $400,000 in a cash payment intended for the Osage Nation. So to recap, Elmer thinks he is going to steal $400,000 from a major railway train that was intended as payment to an indigenous American tribe of people. Not good. He's peachy. But don't worry for the Osage Nation. Well, not because of Elmer McCurdy. It was really Lewis and Clark that started doing the Osage Dirty back in 1806, but that's another story for another time. Anyway, this time, Elmer and the boys managed to stop the wrong train. Oh, Instead of the train with the big important safe, they stopped a passenger train. What's well, like they just all look like? <laughs> it's hard to tell. They left with $46, two demijohns of whiskey, an automatic revolver, and the train conductor's watch. I think that's a win. I mean, it's more than they had going in. Yeah. And they got some experience. <laughs> exactly. It's on their resume. Yeah. Perfect. A newspaper account of the robbery later called it, quote, one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. Well, there you go. That's something. (laughs) You're the ist something. Yeah. It's all we can all aspire to be. But it still worked. Yeah. I still want to be the ist. Yeah. Anything. There you go. Yeah. So on October 6th, 1911, Elmer returned to his pal Charlie's hay shed with his stolen whiskey in despair. This go-around, however, was shaping up to be much rougher than his previous hay shed bender as he had developed severe symptoms of tuberculosis, which he had developed after spending a considerable amount of time working in coal mines. On top of the consumption, Elmer also had mild pneumonia, which, because of the TB, was sure to rapidly become deadly. He also had trichinosis. Trichinosis is a parasitic roundworm you get from undercooked pork. Which is why I will not eat any medium-rare pork. The symptoms are not pretty. They are Oregon Trail levels of dysentery unpretty. So it can be assumed that Elmer was having a pretty wretched time in the hay shed. Was he, like, losing weight, though? Huh. Was it, like, one of those parasites? Well, he had it for such a short amount of time, I don't think mm. he... Also, like, <laughs> he's already not much, so... Yeah. He doesn't have far to go. 
The night of his return, he stayed up drinking for quite some time with a few ranch hands before falling asleep in the hayloft in the early morning hours. What Elmer didn't know was that he wasn't as stealthy as he thought. Oh, wait. Ranch hands, right? Yes. I thought you said ranch hens. I was like, he's just hanging out with the hens. What if he's just <laughs> drunk with a bunch of chickens? Yes. I love that idea. And they were drinking too, so they're yeah. drunk chickens? Perfect. What a wonderful image in my head. I keep it. It's so good. It's no more ridiculous than the rest of this story. Let's okay. put it that way. In the two days since he bungled that train robbery, it had come to light that Elmer was the man to blame for this incident, mainly because he did nothing to hide who he was. I wouldn't put shouting, I'm Elmer McCurdy and I'm robbing this train, past him. But authorities were now looking for him and a $2,000 reward had been issued for his capture. In the early morning hours of October 7th, three sheriffs, brothers Bob and Stringer Fenton and Dick Wallace, tracked Elmer to the hay shed using bloodhounds. They surrounded the hay shed and waited for daylight, an unnecessarily dramatic step, in my opinion, given that Elmer was notoriously awful at everything and in a horrible condition. I don't even think they needed to have a reward. No, they could just be like, get that guy. Yeah. It's fine. Just wanted this man. Kind of wanted. Kind of. <laughs> like, you'll you'll feel good about yourself if you take care of that yeah. guy. The smallest bank robber in the He's world. Not be like, <laughs> guys, no, I just, I robbed the smallest amount. I'm not the smallest. <laughs> Smallest amount of money. But he, the smallest. Except for he was 5'3", according to his skeleton. So, so he I was, am small. He was the smallest. <laughs> oh, man. In an interview featured in the October 8, 1911 edition of the Daily Examiner, Sheriff Bob Fenton told reporters, quote, It began just about 7 o'clock. We were standing around waiting for him to come out when the first shot was fired. It missed me, and he turned his attention to my brother, Stringer Fenton. He shot three times at Stringer, and when my brother got undercover, he turned his attention to Dick Wallace. He kept shooting at all of us for about an hour, so I guess Elmer was really, really trying in the very end. Maybe he did build that gun. Maybe. <laughs> Operating it with his foot. <laughs> yeah. We fired back every time we could. <laughs> we do not know who killed him on the trail. We found one of the jugs of whiskey, which was taken from the train. It was about empty. He was pretty drunk when we rode up to the ranch last night. I bet he killed himself by accident. He might have. I'm firing everywhere. With his foot gun. That's Elmer McCurdy's t-shirt. Elmer yeah. McCurdy. Pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. Kaboom. Oh, it's like the Elmer fudge. Like, but it's him. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. Yeah. Kaboom. Yeah. I would wear that shirt. Now, Elmer, as we know, was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest which he apparently sustained while lying down. He was just 31 years old. Mm. Well, at least he went down in a blaze of glory. Kind of. Pew. But that, pew, pew, kaboom. But that is far from the end for Elmer McCurdy. Oh, yeah, we're just starting the actual story here. In fact, <laughs> it is just the beginning. After the shootout and autopsy, the medical examiner hand El handed Elmer over to Pawhuska, Oklahoma undertaker Joseph L. Johnson. Since no one immediately claimed Elmer's body, who could really do that without incriminating themselves, he didn't, and he didn't have any family in the area, and local news did not travel that far back then, so nobody claimed him. Helen was nowhere to be found. I know, Helen's just wandering off into the night sky. <laughs> I don't know. So since nobody claimed him, Joseph Johnson embalmed Elmer with arsenic-based fluid that was designed to keep a body for a long period of time. This was typically used when the police could not locate a next of kin. 
Joseph then gave Elmer a shave, dressed him in a suit, and stored him in the back room, figuring that someone would come for their long-lost relative eventually, and then he could hit him with the bill. So there Elmer sat, in the back room of Johnson's funeral parlor, for months and months and months, unclaimed. Probably looking the best he's ever had. In his whole life, probably, yes. (laughs) He was in his prime. Yeah, in a suit, face shaved, best life. I have pictures of it, so you can see. I don't need to. He doesn't. The, these pictures aren't horrible. They get worse. It's not like the woman from. No, the it gets love. it gets worse than that. But you know, they they don't start bad. This pissed Joseph Johnson right off. He had spent time and money on this body, given it a suit, and stored it for quite a long time. And so Joseph Johnson said he wasn't releasing the body to anyone for free, and that he would make his money back on this macabre investment somehow. Get a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining like tan from like queer eye tan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I put this whole outfit together. I did his hair. God damn it. <laughs> I would love tan friends to play um Joseph Johnson. That would be amazing. <laughs> so anyway, Joseph Johnson took Elmer's suit off and dressed him in some secondhand street clothes he had collected in the past from other residents of this home for the recently deceased. He then propped him up in the corner of the funeral home, placed a rifle in his hands, and advertised him as, quote, the bandit who wouldn't give up. Little did he know how on the money he was with that statement. Sometimes he changed it up and called him, quote, the mystery man of many aliases or the Oklahoma outlaw, and sometimes simply the embalmed bandit. Joseph Johnson would charge the general public a nickel of you to behold old Elmer, and often the guests were told to put their admission money directly into Elmer's mouth. Hence, the penny Dr. Joseph Choi discovered all those years later. Mm -hmm. Elmer became rather popular, and Joseph Johnson made a little name for himself, enough of a name for carnival and sideshow promoters to start showing up at his showroom in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, looking to buy old Elmer for their traveling shows, but Joseph wouldn't have it. It seemed the show business was easier and paid better than embalming had. (laughs) But then, on October 6, 1916, a man contacted Joseph Johnson. He said he was Elmer's long-lost brother, Aver, from California. Now, we know that Elmer had no brother and was from Maine, but Joseph Johnson didn't know that. And if Elmer's relatives did find Joseph Johnson, they might consider what he did with their long-lost brother's body to be a crime, mm. because it was. Aver had also called the Osage County, Oklahoma Sheriff's Department and gotten permission to take Elmer home for a proper burial. Joseph was left with little choice but to release the body, and the next day, Aver and his friend Wayne arrived to retrieve Elmer, putting him on a train to San Francisco. Only that's not where the train was going. Where was it going, Holly? The train took Elmer to Arkansas City, Arkansas, home of the great Patterson Carnival shows. You see, those men were not Elmer's brother Aver and his helpful friend Wayne. They were Charles and James Patterson. James owned the traveling carnival, and his brother Charles had come to him a few days earlier with a proposal. He heard about Elmer and thought that he would be a nice money-making addition to their traveling show, and he was right. I want you to picture a Dust Bowl-era carnival and sideshow, like HBO's Carnival or American Horror Story Freak Show. That's it. That is exactly Patterson's traveling show. Elmer was exhibited in their collection of oddities. Dear God, do I love a collection of oddities. As, quote, the outlaw who could never be captured alive. 
until 1922, when James Patterson sold the contents of his strange gallery to Lewis Sonny and his traveling museum of crime. Dear God, do I love a traveling museum of crime. And now we have a Sonny in the mix. Indeed. Lewis Sonny mostly exhibited wax replicas of famous outlaws like Bill Doolin, a la Madame Tussauds. Mm. And Elmer gave his outfit a little credibility. Okay. Then, in 1928, Elmer was rented out by the Trans-American Foot Race and displayed in their accompanying sideshow. What a bizarre combination of things. People running from New York to California and also a sideshow. Wait, actually, sorry. I need to ask a question. Sure. Um, okay, so what's his name? Not Avery, the first guy. The brother, Aver. Aver. So he knew that this was a real body, but did... Sonny, no? They all knew it was a real body. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah, at this point in time, it's very clearly an embalmed real human body. Okay. It's just that wasn't super uncommon in sideshows back then. Right. It was like a, they were, a commodity. Okay. okay. So, rented out by the foot race. <laughs> Needless to say, the race also had more than a few casualties of its own. In 1933, Elmer was rented out once again, but this time to a filmmaker named Dwayne Esper. He was to be displayed in promotion of Dwayne's new film, Narcotic. There's an exclamation point, so it's narcotic. At this point, old Elmer had seen better days. He was basically a mummy, completely dried out by time and chemicals. His skin was hard, dark, and shriveled. But this worked in Dwayne Esper's favor, as his film was a drug addiction exploitation film. And he concocted a story that Elmer was, quote, a dead dope fiend that Dwayne claimed had ended his own life, surrounded by police who had caught him robbing a pharmacy. Again... Not incredibly far from the truth, but still, it's not like he knew that. Dwayne Esper said that Elmer's mummification was a side effect of drug abuse. People were to believe that he had been walking around like that just a few days prior. You know, a human raisin robbing pharmacists the country over. Gross. Yeah, you could be alive and have that skin that's bananas. Narcotic is a wild film, by the way. It tells the story of a promising young medical student who becomes addicted to opiates and then travels through opium dens and sideshows before shooting himself in the head. Okay. I don't know, Mr. Medical Student. Opium dens and sideshows sound pretty cool to me. Yeah. Elmer was then returned to Lewis Sonny until his death in 1949. Lewis Sonny's not Elmer's, who is clearly already dead. When Elmer was placed in a storage facility with the rest of the waxworks in Los Angeles. I hope it was air-conditioned. There he stayed until 1964 when Lewis's son, Dan, let filmmaker David F. Friedman borrow Elmer for his even wilder film, She Freak, which was released in 1967. This film is about a waitress who leaves the service industry for the excitement of the carnival only to discover that she hates freaks. Oh no, what an... What a turn. <laughs> I know. Elmer plays a prop, which is fitting as he spent more time as a prop than he did as an actual living human. Mm -hmm. Then in 1968, Dan Sonny sold Elmer and the Wax Outlaws for $10,000 to another human blessed with an amazing name, Spoonie Singh. Ooh. So good. Who owned the Hollywood Wax Museum. And she then turned around and gave them to two Canadian men who exhibited the show along with Elmer at Mount Rushmore. But while on display there, Elmer was damaged in a windstorm. This is when he lost his ears, fingers, and big toes. And after that, he was deemed too gruesome to display to the general public. So, Spoonie Singh sold Elmer to Ed Leersch, 
part owner of the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California, who painted him day-glow orange, slung a noose around his neck, and hung him up in Laugh in the Dark, his rather historic haunted attraction, and we are back to where we began. Did he know that it was a real body? I don't know. It is unclear because he bought him with a suite of wax dummies. So he could have thought that this wasn't actual, that they were just all wax dummies. Right. Right, because at this point it wasn't like, oh, and more would, McCurdy. Right, and one would think that if he knew what he had and he was putting it in a funhouse, he would have done a little better than like hanging it from the rafters. Right. After Elmer was identified and his stranger-than-fiction story hit the news, more than a few funeral homes called the Los Angeles County Coroner's Department and offered to give Elmer a final resting place free of charge. But L.A. County officials held out to see if they could find any of Elmer's family before he was turned over to unfamiliar hands yet again. Fred Olds, who represented the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns, eventually convinced the chief medical examiner coroner for Los Angeles County to allow him to bury the body in Oklahoma. Don't know how he did it, but he did. After further testing to ensure proper identification, Fred was allowed to take custody of the body. On April 22, 1977, a funeral procession was conducted to transport Elmer back to the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Boot Hill is the name of the section of cemeteries in the western United States that were devoted to famous gunfighters, those who, quote, died with their boots on. An upside-down cowboy boot is permanently affixed to the ground in front of Elmer's gravestone. I'm pretty sure he would be proud. Bet you he didn't have his boots on. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. He was laying down, apparently. (laughs) A graveside service attended by approximately 300 people. Among the 300 were most of the crew members on the $6 million man. Was carried out. Elmer was buried next to another outlaw, Bill Doolin, whose wax figure he had sat next to in the Museum of Crime for a great many years. Well, that's adorable. Isn't it? It's so sweet. He's probably like, hey, friend. Yeah. To ensure that Elmer's body would not be stolen and exhibited yet again, the coroner had two feet of concrete poured over his casket. Elmer had finally come to rest. And that (laughs) is the wild and spooky story of the worst train robber in American history, Elmer McCurdy. My gosh. I hope you enjoyed it because it's one of my favorites. (laughs) How wild. Isn't that a wild story? Yeah. It's wild. Every time I hear it, it's wild. <laughs> Twice now. <laughs> Toast? Toast. Oh, man. I would say Elmer, but he was like a, not a great guy in life. He tried. He sure did. He tried to not be great, though. I guess to his mom, Sadie, who had him like really young, although she wasn't great either. I don't know. She turned him over and then 10 years later like was like, oh, I regret my decision. I'm your mom. She owned up. <laughs> I don't know. There aren't a lot of real winners in this situation. I don't know. Um, to you, Holly, for your wonderful storytelling. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I guess to, ooh, um, how about Clyde Snow? Mm-hmm. The forensic. No. The forensic anthropologist with the best name in the world. Yes, sir. Who found out who Elmer was, who identified his body. Yes, yes, yes. Slides now. And we have a new fiend this week. A Yay! new patron. 
Sandra Roberts. Yes. She is a best bean forever. Yes. And if you sign up as a patron, immediately after this, we are recording a video for you, which will be our reactions on this week's case and all the crazy stuff they're in. So if you're not a patron, you should join because it's going to be real fun. Real fun. Real fun. This is the and more part. <gasps> it is. Mm-hmm. And... If we had trichinosis, tuberculosis, and loved blowing things up poorly, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. If you work at a haunted house, do not put a rope around your neck.